0: Hello. Welcome to New Books and German Studies, a channel and the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Dagmar Herzog as a guest. She is the Distinguished Professor of History and Daniel Rose Faculty Scholar at the City University of New York Graduate Center and author of numerous publications. Today, we will discuss, discuss her most recent book entitled Unlearning Eugenics, Sexuality, Reproduction, and Disability in Post-Nazi Europe. This book appeared as part of the George L. Mosse series in Modern European Cultural and Intellectual History with the University of Wisconsin Press in 2018. Hello Dagmar, welcome to the show.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: To start, I was wondering if you could discuss the origins of your interest in the field of German studies, as well as the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book.
1: That's two questions. Okay. The short version of the German studies answer is that originally I'd gone to grad school at Brown to work with Joan Scott in French labor and gender history. But then I became really interested in taking up the deconstructionist and post-structuralist ideas she was working out in the 19th century French context and seeing how they helped me think about 19th century German history. So my first book was on um, the Badenese revolutions of the 1840s, but anyway, the dissertation slash first book was called Intimacy and Exclusion, concerned the dilemmas of liberalism in the face of a rising religious right of ultramontane Catholics, who specifically used sexual innuendo and anti-Semitism for political gain, and then the unexpected consequences that that had for Jewish rights and for women's rights. And then my second book shifted to the 20th century, but took up a lot of the same themes. So sex after fascism took up those questions of sexuality, anti-Semitism, theology, morality, in the context of Nazi and post-Nazi Germany, asking why the lessons of Nazism and the Holocaust were worked through in the realm of sexual politics. And arguably unlearning eugenics is a kind of sequel to sex after fascism. So, To answer the second part of the question, um, I have found these amazing primary sources in the context of another project. Um, It was Christian theologians, Protestant and Catholic, surprisingly, who advocated for abortion rights in the 1960s and 70s. And then I didn't really know what to do with those sources. They were just remarkable. But I ended up reading more in the 60s and 70s about the abortion debates. And then as in sex after fascism, I ended up asking again about the conflicting so-called lessons that were drawn from the Nazi past and the Holocaust. And in the case of unlearning eugenics, the lessons I was asking about have to do with the lessons of the so-called euthanasia murders. That is the mass murder of 200, or if you count the killings in the occupied territories, actually 300,000 individuals with psychiatric illnesses or cognitive disabilities. And those murders Uh, ones that scholars now see as the, quote, trial run or first chapter of the Holocaust of European Jury. And I look at the conflicting consequences over the course of the post-war decades for disability rights on the one hand and women's reproductive rights on the other.
0: Uh, So you open your book with the following sentence. Few topics raise problems of precarious citizenship and dilemmas of moral argument and legal strategy more powerfully than the impasse currently evident across Europe, between women's reproductive rights and disability rights. So this first statement uh, incisively summarizes the point of departure for this book. So I was wondering, um, can you elaborate on what is meant here and the argument uh, that you develop in the introduction? Can you elaborate on that as well?
1: So across Europe, both West and East, and indeed, remarkably, the phenomenon is now coming to the U.S. as well in North Dakota, Indiana, Oklahoma, and Texas, two traditionally progressive movements are increasingly being deliberately pitted against each other as anti-abortion activists have hit upon the idea of styling themselves as defenders of the rights of individuals with disabilities and as they present the curtailment of abortion rights as a great advance for disability rights. So abortion on grounds of fetal anomaly has become one of the most fraught areas of bioethical and political controversy. This is peculiar because it actually took disability rights activists a full four decades, arguably even five decades into the 1990s to get taken seriously at the highest levels of European governments. And now this hard-won and still so fragile moral political imperative to ensure dignified lives for the disabled is being used as a cudgel to intimidate and roll back reproductive rights. And How did this happen? It's complicated, but the vulnerable spot in abortion rights arguments that anti-abortion activists picked up on is that during the 60s and 70s, just when abortion access was being liberalized across Western Europe, it was often apparently easier for advocates of abortion rights to say that abortion should be legal because it was supposedly so awful to bear and raise a disabled child, and it was easier to express derogatory ideas about disability than to argue that women deserve to decide about their sexual and reproductive lives. And it's this insensitivity in the pro-choice rhetoric of the 60s and 70s that has come back to haunt us now in the 21st century present. And just to concretize that, if I could just explain that every country in Europe has a different version of this. It's always adapted to local contexts, but it's striking the way the theme is moving across national boundaries. So in Germany, for instance, the law changed in 2009 in order to make it more difficult for women to choose to terminate a pregnancy on grounds of disability. And the aim, I mean, the Christian Democrats have been trying this for a while, but the way they got green and social democratic support is um, by arguing that the aim was to demonstrate that disabled life will never be valued less highly than abled life. So that's a beautiful sentiment, but concretely, it's extremely insensitive to the agonizing dilemmas which actual women and their partners confront. And then in the UK in 2013, there was actually a parliamentary inquiry on abortion and disability on the argument that the ability to terminate on grounds of fetal anomaly up to a much later week in the pregnancy than on any other possible grounds was in violation of the Disability Rights Act of 2010. In Austria, it was the Greens who argued that later term terminations were an injustice to the disabled. In Spain, it was in 2014 that the argument was made that Spanish law, which had just liberalized abortion access couple years earlier in 2010, should undo that because the country needed to come into compliance with the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which, by the way, says nothing about abortion. In Poland, uh, where abortion on grounds of fetal anomaly are one of the very few grounds in which they're permitted at all, the Prime Minister proposed in 2016 to give women who carry a disabled fetus to term a one-time gift of $1,000. In Hungary, uh, it came in the form of an amendment to the constitution declaring that eugenics of any kind is unacceptable, and most recently it's even come to Belarus, where the concern about abortion because of disability is being floated. So it's happening everywhere, but always differently. But meanwhile, in this incredibly painful irony, it's all happening at a time of welfare state shrinkage and austerity policies, which mean that actual government support for self-determining lives for differently-abled individuals is being cut. And the necessary conditions for flourishing lives are concretely constricted.
0: One of of the ideas that you pursue in the first chapter of your book involves how current master narratives about the 1960s and 1970s overlook many crucial elements in the struggle for reproductive rights for women. One of these overlooked themes includes the arguments made from within a religious and Christian framework in favor of legal access to abortion. Um, so these, in some cases, these theologians you mentioned from the 60s and 70s. Can you share what you uncover about religious figures who argued for the decriminalization of abortion and why they have been forgotten?
1: Yeah, I'd love to, because they're pretty remarkable. And it would be interesting if they existed now that they don't. So in the 60s and 70s, the theologians who advocated for liberalized abortion access made several arguments, five or six. So one is that Moral reasoning on the subject of abortion needs to begin from the life of the individual woman and her specific situation. So as one put it not the abstraction human life but the concrete human being needs to be the starting point of moral reflection and that her life needs to be considered in its holistic entirety and that includes the well-being of her family. So as another put it loving one's neighbor has to start from the position of the already living involuntarily pregnant woman and her sense of dread about the future. And secondly, the theologians argued that it was a foundational moral issue to be able to determine the number and timing of children, that we are not animals, right? That this is a rudimentary part of human dignity. And third, um, and this is really interesting and it's hard to imagine now, but they really argued that wantedness and relationality are central aspects of what constitutes humanness in the first place. And they suggested that an incipient life needs to be affirmed, the way they put it, was called to be born, in order to be fully humanized. Abortion, they said, is, quote, not murder because it is specifically motivated by the refusal or incapacity to humanize the embryo. And then, I, you know, I looked at their writings, and it's interesting that they do not get too much into the sticky intricacies of how exactly women end up pregnant. But it is striking that both French and Swiss Catholics remarked that it was just and right that women will no longer accept that they are the ones who have to pay for the pleasure of the men, especially of those men who don't concern themselves with the consequences of sexual relationships. So they did understand at least that much. Um, And then fifth, and again, strikingly, they worked strenuously to reject the idea that life begins at conception over and over again, whether it's the British Anglicans or Methodists or whether it's in the continental European countries. They distinguished between the potential life of an embryo and a later term fetus. And they also said that a fetus cannot be classified as an independent human being. But for me, the most notable argument was the final one, uh, the one that directly challenged the idea that all pregnancies were God's will. And there's a Swiss Protestant, his name is Eula Barchai, and he actually said, this is pure biologism, not true faith. In other words, he directly reversed what Canada is secular and what counted as an active faith. So for him to treat God as the origin of a conception that was caused by male ineptitude or irresponsibility or by technical failure, like a slipped condom or diaphragm, was in his eyes, quote, not only grotesque, but actually blasphemy and simply incompatible with Jesus's teachings. Now, that's pretty elaborate theological thinking, and it's a really good question why they've been forgotten. One of my findings is that hostility to women's sexual and reproductive self-determination is by no means confined only to the religious. There's been an aggressive rollback against women's rights growing in strength globally in the last 10 to 15 years, and plenty of the arguments are made explicitly in secular, not religious terms. And on the other hand, I would say also that much of what is presented as religion these days is hard to separate from right-wing nationalism and racism. So Social justice-oriented versions of Christianity, just like of Judaism or Islam, have always had this small, contrapuntal, embattled presence within the traditions. And in the 60s and 70s, those were stronger strands. So 60s and 70s within Christianity were a time of tremendous interest in liberation theology. And it's easy to see that a leftward turn more generally helped the churches to rescue the reputation of Christianity that had been so tainted by its association with Nazism, other fascisms. So one of my hopes in bringing these creative figures, these embattled contrapuntal figures from the 60s, and 70s back into view, is that it'll help us see that religion per se is not the problem in our present. It's about what kind of religion we have, right? And um, I include... It's hard for people who are only listening to this, but I urge you to look it up. A beautiful artwork of The Last Supper by Ralph Mamedov, M-A-M-E-D-O-V. It's a painting, photographic painting of Jesus and the disciples all being portrayed by individuals in Down with Down syndrome to make an emphatic point in favor of liberation theology.
0: Yes, and the, Ill, there are a lot of illustrations in this book, so it really, um, uh, it really is a, important part, you know, a very important part of the text, I would say, or a very important part of the, of the book. Um, okay, so uh, just moving on then. Uh, the first chapter of the book is also crucial to your thesis about how eugenics often became prominent in rhetoric that surrounded efforts to de- decriminalize abortion. Can you provide an example or two of how abortion and disability became linked?
1: Yes, so the theologians did argue that abortion on grounds of disability was moral. In other words, they in no way romanticized the difficulties of being disabled or of loving and caring for someone who has a disability, but they were not as derogatory and nasty as many other proponents of liberalized abortion access. But nonetheless, for example, in the French Jesuit journal Etude, the authors tactlessly, I would say, wrote that it was really, quote, immoral for children to be born who will end up being a heavy burden to society. Hostility to the disabled, though, it's worth pointing out, is not invented by the Nazis. It pre-existed them and then continued on after them, right? And it existed in all countries, even though the Nazis radicalized it in the extreme and coercively sterilized you know, close to 1% of their own population and murdered as I've said, in cynical hubris, 300,000 more, precisely the most vulnerable people. So, in fact, the ones killed were the most cognitively challenged, the ones unable to provide labor but instead requiring the labor of care from others. But what I learned is that these horrific excesses did not, as we now in the U.S. might naively think, make negative attitudes toward the disabled uncool in the post-war era. On the contrary... Popular hostility to the disabled, and this was not true just in Germany, but also in France and Switzerland and Italy and England and everywhere else. Um, Basically, hostility to the disabled was exacerbated and deepened in the post-war era. It was a source of shame for families and terrible loneliness for individuals. And that's totally the norm through the 60s and 70s in many countries. So it's not really a big surprise that negative assumptions about disability shaped the abortion discussion um i mean this is hard to put into words but you know a a disability negative argument for abortion rights seemed strategically effective in its moment it provided a kind of end run around people's ambivalence about women's sexual freedom it's it's, in the context of the time it seemed like a moral argument to make in favor of abortion rights so for example um 80 of catholics catholics in west germany in 1971 approved of abortion on grounds of fetal anomaly It's hard to imagine now, but knowing it now explains a lot.
0: And just using that uh, answer as a segue uh, to my next question here, um, the book discusses how the T4 program of the third Reich cast a long shadow over post-war Germany, Europe, the struggle for disability rights, as well as debates about abortion. Can you summarize how memory of this past crime shaped post-1945 Europe?
1: So... As I'm indicating, the fact of mass murder did not lead directly into any fresh concern for disability rights. On the contrary, and shockingly, many of the perpetrator doctors enjoyed great popular support and had very bright post-war careers. Meanwhile, the West German government found lots of excuses not to give recognition or pay reparations to the coercively sterilized and individuals with disabilities were hidden away, either by families or in often very repressive institutions and denied self-determination. So, I mean, this has just taken me a long time to figure out, but it was really an enormous achievement that took until the 1980s to bring disability rights into view. And it involved a three-way cooperation of first, self-advocates, and those include survivors of the coercive sterilizations of the Nazis, family members of the murdered, And individuals in the so-called radical cripple movement, that was their self-definition, people who had polio or in other ways, muscular dystrophy, or some of them were the uh, children who had been born with truncated limbs because of the thalidomide scandals, but they were physically disabled. Secondly, there were historians, and strikingly, many of them are independent scholars outside of the formal academy. Um, two of the most important are the independent scholar Ernst Clay, who wrote this path breaking book in 1983 about euthanasia in the NS state. And the other is the feminist historian Gisela Bach, who in 1986 wrote the first major study of the sterilizations and explained also to the Bundestag, where she was called to testify that the abuse of the disabled was part and parcel of Nazi racial policies and deserved to be treated just as seriously. And then finally, the third, um, Constituency is the just born Green Party, which took up the cause of the so-called forgotten victims, including the victims of sterilizations. So those three, the self-advocates, historians, and the Green Party, put justice for the disabled more centrally on the political agenda in the 80s in Germany. But also in other nations, disability rights activism, aside from veterans, of course, grew only very, very slowly. And it took into the 70s to get going in the form of self-advocacy groups and until the 80s and 90s to get any results politically. And really, I mean, this is shocking, but it's important. Strong public commitment to memorialization is totally a 21st century like post-turn of the millennium thing. The Bundestag did not repudiate the Nazi sterilization law until 2007. And the stunning, the really just gorgeous and informative blue glass memorial to the murder disabled in Berlin was not built until 2014. That's five years ago
0: and uh, that answers is a nice example of something that you do well in the book and that's how you take uh you know case studies out of germany but then kind of extrapolate and demonstrate how that's part of these larger european wide trends
1: it's a confusing story it was hard to figure out you know how things happened the way they did
0: <laughs> so in any case in the second chap uh, the second chapter of the book explores an event known as the singer affair in west germany during the 1980s can you describe the debate surrounding uh, Peter Singer and what is exposed about the relationship between disability rights and women's reproductive rights?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. It took me some time to understand why disability rights activists would eventually lend their support to the idea that abortion on grounds of fetal anomaly was immoral. Because coming at this from an American point of view, that's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, history could have gone in a different direction. It is possible, I contend, ardently to defend and promote disability rights and still find termination of pregnancy and grounds of disability morally acceptable. So to just take a contrasting example, Israeli disability rights organizations say it is both, quote, important to prevent and important to support. So they think it's okay to abort on grounds of disability. But of course, when someone's born who's disabled, of course, we're going to pour all the love and care we can into that person. But that's not what happened in Germany. So the second chapter comes in specifically on West and then United German discussions to explore how um, conversely to the developments of the 60s and 70s, this new appallingly long delayed but now finally their insistence in the 80s and 90s on a more positive attitude towards disability would end up having adverse repercussions on women's rights to abortion access. So I ultimately learned how feminists within the radical cripple movement while emerging from the new left for a multiplicity of reasons came in the course of the 80s to advocate a particular position that demanded women's right to abortion access on any and all grounds except on grounds of fetal anomaly. So the very existence of those grounds, the so-called eugenic indication, was considered in and of itself a sign of unacceptable, profoundly immoral hostility to the disabled. And I traced how this compromise position, all abortions are okay except for this one kind, first articulated by this tiny minority of left leaning women, came to be, after the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the absorption of the former East into the Federal Republic, the law of the land under conservative Christian democratic auspices. And yes, the story turns out to have a great deal to do with the Australian philosopher Peter Singer, who is best known to most people as an animal rights advocate, but someone who in 1989, just before the wall fell, caused an extraordinary eruption of debate about human disability rights with his utilitarian philosophical contention, that the life of a pig or dog or chimpanzee is worth more than that of a cognitively disabled infant. So it's not like he just caused this all by himself. I mean, causation in history is a tricky thing. And indeed, in the late eighties, there were a number of dynamics colliding, but for contingent, but then ultimately consequential reasons, he's the reason for uh, a shift in the debate. So among the things that were colliding, and I sometimes think of history as like this billiard ball table where you shoot a ball and things go off in all different unexpected directions. So, One thing that happened was a huge scandal over an abortion doctor in the conservative state of Bavaria. Then at the same time, there was um, repeated evidence of insensitivity among Greens and feminists and other members of what was left of the new left around disability suddenly in the wake of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor disaster, in which disability in cartoons and in narratives was portrayed as a horrendous outcome of technology gone awry. And that's Painfully ironic, because it's even as Greens are also the key players in seeking justice for victims of the Nazis' coercive sterilizations. And another thing that's happening is this consolidation at long last of a historiographical consensus that Nazi abuse and murder of psychiatric patients and individuals with disabilities constitute a form of racism. This was a really incredible accomplishment. And then, on the other hand, there's anti-abortion activist efforts to reach out to disability activists with increasing success. And then there's simultaneously strenuous women's rights efforts to refute the ascendant Christian democratic argument that abortion is equal to murder. So all these contradictory things are happening at once, but it's the battle over Peter Singer and his right or not to speak in Germany that literally finally catapults would have been this tiny group of disability rights advocates into national media attention. And it's also Singer's eroding of the boundary between abortion and infanticide, something very special to him, his springboarding from the feminist achievement that made abortion morally acceptable to white publics in the 70s to argue for the legitimacy also of infanticides, like if you can kill a fetus, why can't you just kill a newborn? That's what shapes the terms that German discussions could take. Because also his opponents, while being horrified and repelled by him, agree to his terms of debate, this blurring of the line between abortion and infanticide.
0: And then in the final chapter of the book, Uh, The book explores the advocacy for disability rights in Germany and Europe. It features several organizations and people who advanced this agenda in the 21st century. Can you describe one or two of the activists you cover that exemplify the major reforms that have been sought over the last two decades?
1: Yeah, I I definitely wanted to end on a happy note. Um, The final chapter widens out again to all of Europe, documenting a big range of disability rights efforts in the 2000s and 2010s. And importantly, also, the emphasis is on the full lifespan of individuals with disabilities, not just the moment of birth. Um, so actually, I sort of think of the chapters of the book as going thesis, antithesis, alternative antithesis. Um, <clears throat> but once again, there are these complex reverberations between various presents and pasts, as this chapter traces a variety of literal and conceptual connections between avid present-day efforts to insist on full human subjecthood for individuals with disabilities, including especially also individuals with cognitive disabilities in all dimensions of existence, sexual, political, psychological, and an eclectic but final handful of intentional life-sharing communities that brought together disabled and enabled individuals founded already in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in either direct or indirect reaction against the Nazis' systematic mass murder project. So it's another way of drawing lessons from the past, right? So an example would be the Camp Hill movement started by Austrian Jewish socialists who were drawn to the anthroposophical ideas of Rudolf Steiner. Um, they flee the Nazis in 1938 and move to Scotland to live in intentional community with disabled children. Another example is the Catholic L'Arche, as in Noah's Ark movement, started by Jean Vanier in France when he chose to live together with individuals with cognitive disabilities, including Down syndrome. And both of these, both Camp Hill and L'Arche, are now globe-spanning movements encompassing several hundred communities, but they were both developed in reaction against the Nazis. But I'm also deeply moved, for example, um, by the work of a man named Duncan Mersica in Malta, the smallest of the European countries, who builds on a contrapuntal strand of radical possibility within the psychoanalytic tradition. It's- Exemplified by the leftist Lacanian, Felix Guattari, most famous as being the co-author of that counterculture classic of the 70s, Anti-Oedipus, but someone who in the 60s and 70s lived in community with individuals living with schizophrenia at a clinic called La Borde in France. And Guattari inspires Murcika. What does Murcika do? He's an educational specialist. He works with children who have what is called PMLD, in other words, profound and multiple learning disabilities. They often have IQs that are unmeasurably low. They have no standard means of communication. These are the people that Peter Singer thinks don't even count as persons, right? And Guattari believed um, human beings were mutually transformative. Um, I don't know if you read Anti-Oedipus, but basically it's all about flows of energy, intensities, and desires. And Guattari rejected bounded identity categories, and he emphasized the importance for everyone, as he put it, of becoming black, becoming woman, becoming gay, And Murcika takes this up and talks about the profundity of the possibility of becoming PMLD and the ways in which these children, who for him are absolutely full persons, are agents who have transformed him. So also in this chapter, I try to show um, another feature for me is how significant the precursor developments of the sexual revolution and the LGBT rights movements of the 70s, 80s, and 90s have been for formulating a strong case for disability rights especially for finding imaginative ways to engender empathy and to communicate both the universally relevant implications and the minoritizing aspects of differently ampled life, whether emphasizing the beauty of non-normative bodies or the ways disability because it causes intricate interdependencies inter- between people so often reconfigures families. So I guess overall I'm trying to show that sexual rights and disability rights are absolutely compatible and don't need to be positioned as competing. So I conclude the book by tracing the arc from the medical model of disability in the early post-war period right through the social disablement by the environment empowerment model, sort of the 70s and 80s, 90s, to a model which is concerned above all, building especially on Guadalupe with justice and desire.
0: All right. Well, and my next question is one I don't often get to ask, but as you, uh, you're, you've done such a, an extensive amount of work uh, on the history of sexuality, um, I was wondering if you were willing to take the time to comment on how your findings in this book build upon your past work about the history of sexuality and the history of religion also.
1: Yeah, so I have this feeling that I'm always skittering out on emotional black ice, but basically <laughs> I have a bad habit of being drawn to a kind of intellectual history that is about conflicts that are simultaneously ideological, political, moral, and emotional. I mean just very intense for people. And in this case, they're not just about sexual politics in the wake of mass murder, the way say sex after fascism was, but they're about something as intimidating and complicated as the politics of actually making life itself. So it was very, very intense to do the research and to have, um, I would almost say, ethnographic encounters with people now, whether they're disability rights activists or whether they are um, working for you know, the European equivalence of Planned Parenthood and having to deal with individual women or couples who are making decisions about termination. There's something so profoundly fraught about this. It was really quite... Scary sometimes to do the work. Um, But building out of my prior projects, I tend to be obsessed with things like how terms of debate about intimate moral matters get set and what makes them tip in a new direction. And I'm especially concerned with strategies of persuasion, like how does ideological work work? (laughs) And um, the ways in which identifications and empathy can be awakened and mobilized. So those are, I'm always looking for heroes and heroines in the past who are, you know, finding ways to um, express ethical matters in ways that will be persuasive. Right. And you, you asked about religion also, not just about sex. Um, I'm always again drawn to and in awe of humane and generous ways of living and being, including religious ones. And of course I'm always appalled by uses of religion to justify abuse of power and cruelties. Um, and It took me a while to think about it in this way, but maybe another way to summarize what the book is about is that it concerns intimate human rights. So sexuality and disability are two latecomers to the post-war human rights agenda. In fact, many of the current arguments about when did human rights start or when, when did we shift to a human rights thing? Was it already the French Revolution or is it only the 70s or is it only the 90s and so on? Don't even incorporate sex and disability, but Let's be honest, neither of those were taken really seriously until the 1980s and 1990s. And now moreover in the 2010s are being pitted against each other. So that's one thing I just wanted to bring into view. And another thing I was really interested in is how, by coincidence or not, both of these things challenge the enlightenment ideal of individual autonomy, right? Because both pregnancy and disability blur boundaries between people even as I would insist the Enlightenment heritage remains just indispensable for women's rights and disability rights both.
0: Well, Dagmar, um, my next question is uh, one that was kind of the burning question I had as I read the first um, few chapters of your book, especially. Uh, The the book really highlights the historic uh, dissonance between movements in favor of women's reproductive rights on the one hand and disability rights on the other hand. So what do you view as the best way forward for those who wish to protect and or expand women's rights to abortion access?
1: Right. What is to be done? Um, There's so many things that need to be done differently these days. Uh, Okay. So let me think. Um, I guess one point I would make is that it's really important to get away from abstraction and high-minded righteousness, um, which is often I would say hypocritical and sadistic and to create greater empathy for the concrete agonies of individual women's and their partner's decision-making. I mean, that's what gets lost in all these super righteous um, efforts to claim that we need to curtail abortion rights on grounds of disability. So I guess get away from abstraction and high-minded righteousness would be point number one. Um, I also, secondly, would say it's incredibly important to direct attention to life after birth, not to fixate on this moment of birth, and actually – you know, call attention to the enormity of love and care and also money. Disability costs money that is needed to make flourishing, joyful, dignified lives possible across the lifespan. I think that's one of the most essential things we can do is to acknowledge that welfare states are important. And the third thing, and I guess I mentioned this earlier, um, is, you know, the importance of identifying heroes and heroines just giving voice to that precious handful of individuals who articulate ethical positions that are under attack, but are, that are really important. And so looking for people who can argue that defensive disability rights can coexist indeed must coexist with support for individuals and couples making their own choices about whether to terminate or now with the new technologies, whether to use pre-implantation diagnostic testing or whether to carry to term. It's hard for Americans to imagine but in Europe there's a lot of ambivalence about pre-implantation diagnostic testing. There's a lot of worry that this is somehow Nazi to choose between different um fertilized eggs that's somehow already terribly eugenic and scary. So Key examples for me that I highlight in my book that I just want to bring to a wider public are an amazing woman in the UK named Jane Fisher, who runs a national telephone hotline that helps couples with total openness to whatever their outcome will be, but helps them to make the decisions that are right for them after they receive a diagnosis of fetal abnormality. So she's very important. She also testified in that UK parliamentary inquiry on abortion disability, um, very sensitively and differentiatedly. And another person I bring into view is a man named Luc Ricordon, who's a Swiss politician who is himself disabled with holt oram syndrome. It's, um, for those who don't know, it causes malformation of heart and limbs and excruciating pain. And he has gone on record repeatedly pointing out both that it's just a huge responsibility to bring human life into the world and that not to ensure it has the best possible chances is tremendous injustice. And who has pointed out that empirically, countries that permit pre-implantation diagnostics and permit termination on grounds of disability also happen to be countries in which the living disabled are treated with great respect and dignity.
0: All right. Well, I could listen to you talk about this for uh, quite some time. And there's a lot to talk about. But I think at this point, we've taken up enough of your time. And I'd like to end the interview with the typical new books final question. What are you working on now? (laughs)
1: aside from getting ready for the new semester (laughs) (laughs) batches of new students um yeah so i'm co-editing an anthology on sexuality and colonialism with chelsea shields at uc irvine for ratledge i'm very excited about that and i'm also writing the introduction to the translation into english of a 1978 book by the radical swiss psychoanalyst fritz morgenthaler who is a fascinating figure. He was the first European analyst since Sigmund Freud to say that homosexuality is not a pathology and to develop just wonderful, subversive, generous ideas about what he called, quote, the sexual as a guerrilla force in ever uneven battle with the dictatorship that has already formed sexuality. And uh, he was an ethnologist who also, in addition to being a psychoanalyst, he conducted what he and his Um, cohorts called Ethno-Psychoanalytic Conversations, sort of at the border of anthropology and psychoanalysis, in decolonizing Mali and Côte d'Ivoire and in Papua New Guinea. He was just a remarkable person, so that's another big task. But the major project involves um, the one that I was brought to through the unlearning eugenics thing, which is involves burrowing even more deeply into this dark hole of the euthanasia murders. Looking specifically at what has been called the broken resistance of the Christians who sought valiantly, but ultimately, in most cases, failed to stop the killings. And then also exploring the long climb out of that abyss and the lesson making and rethinking, and ultimately the development of a disability liberation theology and way of being.
0: Well, uh, your level of productivity and research is always quite staggering, but uh, thank you for, for sharing those. All those projects sound really interesting, and hopefully, we can. Heavy you on the show when some of those start to come out down the line
1: that would be great
0: so uh well thank you for giving us your time and for being on the show today dagmar
1: thank you so much
0: well that's it for uh today on new books and german studies we are uh, a channel in the new book network new books network of podcasts my name is michael o'sullivan and our guest today was dagmar herzog we discussed her recent book on learning eugenics sexuality Reproduction and Disability in Post-Nazi Europe, published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2018. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you will continue to listen.